Hello, Heartland Pods. So welcome to Let's Have a Chat. Uh, I am Rachel Parker, familiar to most of you who listen to our Talking Politics episodes on Monday. And I'm here with friend of the pod, Lori Curry, although she's new, she's not new to me. We've been talking for a while, but she's new to our listeners. So Lori, would you please introduce yourself and talk about who you are and what you do? Sure. Thanks for having me. Um, I am Lori Curry. I am the founder and executive director of Missouri Prison Reform. Um, We are a 501c3 nonprofit advocacy organization. Um, We advocate for Missouri's incarcerated, their families, friends, all kinds of folks. I don't remember what the issue is, but I do want to talk to people a little bit about how you and I originally connected, which I think was like, was it around this time last year? I believe so. Something yeah. like that. Yeah. So something came to my attention in Missouri about, I think it was probably COVID related um, at the time. I don't exactly remember what it was, but uh, it was another issue about how the state of Missouri not only mistreats incarcerated persons, but also just mistreats uh, correction staff. And I flew into a rage on Twitter and I said, can someone please connect me with um, advocates who work in this arena? And your Twitter handle came up like three or, from three or four different sources. Uh, so that's when you and I spoke and you introduced me to Tim Cutt, who's the director of Missouri's uh, Corrections Officers Union. And um, you brought my attention to something which I think is really important that we start talking about, which is Missouri State's lack of transparency with the Corrections Department. And you said that in terms of, again, Missouri ranks last in a lot of areas, including how much information they provide uh, from the Missouri Corrections Department to people, uh, to people outside of the corrections system. So can you talk a little bit about that and how things have been going? Sure. Um, yeah, like you said, um, they are one of the worst that I've seen as far as providing information to the public. Um, in fact, the reason I started this work was because I felt like I had been lied to my whole life about our prisons, our prison conditions, um, you know, what, what incarcerated folks have access to in our prisons. Um, and not even that, but, um, how corrections officers are treated, um, staff pay, all kinds of things. Um, and there is a um, huge lack of transparency when it comes to our corrections administration um, and what they provide to the public. And I do quite a large number of records requests um, referred to as sunshine requests in Missouri because of the sunshine law to get a lot of information. Um, they've recently begun fighting me on that um, wanting to charge me enormous amounts of money, but it, it creates a, a huge mistrust between family members of incarcerated people, people that love those people that are in the prisons and the Department of Corrections. And that just creates a huge list of other issues. Can you talk a little bit about what some of those, like what some of those records that you're trying to access, like what is the type of information that you typically ask for and what, what do they normally, like how hard is it to get it? And like, what do they withhold? Sure. Um, Every Monday, I submit a sunshine request for deaths of incarcerated folks that are in their custody. Um, And I did have to sometimes submit a sunshine request for COVID data that they were supposed to provide on their website. 
but I also do things regarding, you know, building maintenance um, of their prisons. And that one recently they wanted to charge us $1,100 for. They know we don't have that. So that's one of the things they've begun doing. Um, right before that, we submitted a sunshine request, um, a records request for any internal communication regarding myself and our organization. Um, it came back that they have over 3,200 documents, um, over 13,000 pages worth of communication about us. Um, and I had them omit anything that was from us or to us. So this is, this is just them talking about our organization or myself. Um, and they charged us $532 for that. We paid that, we, we submitted the records request in May, we paid it in June, and we just kept getting the runaround from them. At the beginning of this month, they quit responding to our emails. They'd cashed our check. They kept saying, oh, we're working on it, we're working on it, and then they stopped responding. So last week I created <laughs> quite the storm on Twitter, um, got some other people involved, and finally we got our first batch of records from them, which was 360 pages, 68 of those was fully redacted. But, you know, it, it shouldn't have taken that to get those records. And, and we're still waiting on the rest of them. And what is what is redacted? I mean, like, I get when you request information from the FBI or the intelligence agencies or stuff like that, that there is, you know, they get to pull the national security card or what is it about these? I mean, you're you're talking about information that shouldn't really be behind what wall is this information? You know what I mean? Like, we're talking about people whose con convictions are publicly known. We should know what's happening. And these are all public institutions. These are, this is not a private prison system. This is the Missouri State Corrections Division. Right. Um, so on what grounds are they redacting information? And what information can you tell from even looking at these documents initially? Like, what can you tell in what they're in relation to? You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and we've asked them for that and they have not responded. Per the Sunshine Law, they have to tell us um, each each one of those pages, what it's why it's redacted, what kind of information is redacted. Um, I did email their records custodian on Monday of this week, um, asking those questions and have gotten no response. And what's um, that person? Do you mind? Uh, do you mind my asking what that person's name is? Her name is Stacia Wolf, and I, I would like to know um, when I first began doing these records requests, um, the Department of Corrections would not name a records custodian. They, they wouldn't tell us who it was. And I talked to other, like I talked to reporters who said, I've asked who their records custodian is. They said they don't have a specific person. So um, we have an attorney on our board of directors that helps me with all our sunshine requests. She's taught me how to do this. She's great. Um, her name is Chelsea Murda. She's an angel. Um, Chelsea. Yeah. yeah. yeah she's yeah, a yeah. firecracker. <laughs> totally. hundred percent. Yeah. So she, helped me kind of, um, because per the Sunshine Law, again, they have to name their, their records custodian. Um, and so they named Stacia. And I, I do kind of feel like they kind of threw this on her. That's, I, I feel like they threw it on Stacia. So, <laughs> so she is their records custodian. Okay, so you're, you've gotten these records. We don't have any information to know why certain pages or certain information is being withheld from the public. And they haven't uh, and I assume that you've asked to say, like, why can't we know this stuff? Like, whose privacy are you protecting and why, essentially, is the question, right? And they still haven't provided you that information. No, Stacia hasn't responded. No. And she I may not She may not know, right? Like, we can assume that Stacia is 
fulfilling some sort of administrative role and that she is simply basically processing requests and issuing documentation and someone above her is saying it's redacted period done so she may not know her she may not know either right like she may have no idea why this stuff is being withheld from from us really so in order to charge us that money that they the 532 dollars um they're not allowed to charge for the attorney reviewing documents that's against the law um, and so we asked them to give us an explanation of why they were charging us that money. And so Stacia said that she was going to review the documents first to see what needed to be redacted. And then she was going to send that to their attorney and their attorney, he was going to review what she had marked to be redacted to make sure that it was okay. So, so I believe Stacia has read all of the documents and marked things to be redacted okay um, so we are gonna we are gonna hold stacia a little bit like sorry stacia we're talking about you girl so we are gonna hold her somewhat accountable for the we'll just say um uh, overreach or perhaps miscalculation in how some of these uh, redactions were issued i find it odd that the whole page is redacted these whole pages the first the first 50 pages are redacted, and then there are another 16 pages and, later on and, in the batch. And let's clarify, you're talking about records related to building maintenance, which should be public knowledge because it's taxpayer money. You're talking about potentially human beings who have died in custody and uh, other presumably communication requests from families inside the prison system. Are, what, what exactly? Talk about what's in these Let's, let's just talk about like what was in these pages that you that kind of caused a little bit of a firestorm on Twitter last week. So the records that I that I that we did get um, that I was able to see are things um, I had reached out to the Department of Corrections constituent services at one point um, asking about some tablets the, the incarcerated have tablets they can read emails on and stuff like that. Um, these were exchanges between them talking about me and how I'm quote woke, um, I guess, because I care about these people being able to communicate with their family members. Um, these are the thing, the records that, that were in there. Um, screenshots of people's LinkedIn accounts where it had been suggested that they follow Missouri Prison Reform's LinkedIn account, um, things like that. And I do wanna say, um, I talked to Karen Pogeman, who is the, um, kind of communications person for the Department of Corrections, I guess. And she had stated that they had to go through all these records and, and check for redactions because of because of Missouri Prison Reform advocating for people's medical needs. That's been very minimal. And when we do attempt that, they basically shut us down and say, you know, we can't talk to you about that. We can only talk to family members. And so then so- I, I try to help a family member advocate, but I, I don't know what 50 pages worth could be about you know someone's health records with my involved yeah hopefully you'll come you'll you'll keep us posted on how that process is going because that's that's that's, they're not the fbi this is bananas to me and they're again i feel like they're acting um not in the best faith of uh, not they're not acting in good faith if that's the case so so let's say that you have a, a family member who you care about who's um languishing inside of some of the most underfunded broke down ass prison uh, conditions in the, in the country. Uh, and you're trying just to find out if they're getting their medication or if they're able to, you know, let's, let's say that somebody goes into the prison system 
and they have type 2 diabetes and you're concerned about their diet we all know that like you know uh the the missouri prison system does not offer uh let's say high quality food and we're going to get to that in a second um talk about the kind of the day in the life of somebody trying to get uh, a request through the system just to find out if their spouse their child a family member um is getting the type of medical attention that they need like just finding it out if they are not if they can we all know that's like probably a tall order but how can they find out like what is that like for them just to find out if they're getting their medication if they're getting a low carb diet whatever it is this is a huge issue right now with medications i don't know how many emails we get from the incarcerated telling us i'm not getting my medication um i'm diabetic and they stopped giving me my diabetic medication my sugars are running in the 400s so this is a huge issue um and I, I do try to help family members advocate for their loved ones. Um, so they will call the facility and they'll say, you know, I need to talk to medical. So I wanna point out that med the medical provider is, is separate from the Department of Corrections. They are now Centene or Centurion out of the St. Louis area. Oh yeah, we know Centene in St. Louis, we're, we're familiar. Yeah. yeah. So they will call and ask to talk to medical. If they are even able to reach anyone, medical will say, you know, I can't talk to you unless there's a release of information signed by your loved one for you. Now, those have to be signed once a year. So if my loved one wanted me to be able to talk to medical staff on his behalf, um, he would have to sign the release of information for me. That's always their go to. And they're always going to say we don't have one on. We don't have one signed, you know, for you to talk to us, even if he just signed one last week, they're going to say, we don't have one signed for you. So do, is it then beholden on the incarcerated person to prove to medical somehow that this thing has been signed and somehow that has to, re, has to be coordinated between the family member, perhaps with you advocating the incarcerated person and this third party that's being paid, uh, we'll get to how much in a second, to manage the um, healthcare of the, the prison itself. So how, like that has to be triangulated presumably, right? So then they, so then my loved one would have to go back to medical or ask for a release of information form, sign it again. Um, and that that's another issue. A lot of times they, they're telling us that they ask for these forms um, and that they're not getting them. Uh, we had an instance where a man asked for one for his wife medical said oh we took it to him and he wouldn't sign it and and he was saying i never even got one um it's just there are so many barriers um and it's again it, it makes it feel like they don't want to talk to family members they don't want to have to tell them anything how much do you know how much is that contract worth to centene right now do you know roughly what the prison system pays centene an annual or if it you know is it was it an exclusive contract do you know anything about the process that they were about awarding the contract to them I haven't looked it up in a while and I can't recall and I don't want to misquote anything. No, no, that's fine. That's fine. That's a, that, yeah. that, that's totally fair. Let's assume it's worth millions. Um, mm -hmm. So, okay. So obviously uh, it's quite difficult for someone when they're um, within the prison system already. Uh, and let's, and let's just also talk about the reality of people that are likely to be incarcerated in the Missouri prison system. What, like, can you talk a little bit about those demographics? Like, level of education, economic background, the likelihood that they're in there for a nonviolent offense, just some of those things that you know off the top of your head. 
Yeah, um, I think it's important to point out that so many of the people who are in our prisons experienced so much trauma growing up. I think if people really got to know them or listen to their stories, they would see that they had really difficult lives. A lot of them had abuse in their past, um, experienced abuse, multiple kinds. And the reality is most of these people are going to be released back into society. And so I think it's really important that we find a way to help them um, heal from that kind of stuff and be better people when they when they come home, um, give them better tools while they're in prison, but also when they're released. There are, that, that's another lie that I feel like the Department of Corrections says that there are all kinds of programs in the prisons. Um, you know, they have lots of opportunities and that's just not the case. You know, a lot of stuff was shut down during COVID, um, but even the, the programs that are there, they make it so difficult to attend. You know, for instance, there's a, there's a new college program at um, Jefferson City Correctional Center. And these men so wanted to participate in this. I had to spend about two whole days on the phone with different colleges helping these men get their transcripts because basically that should have fallen on an education coordinator and the prisons and, and that person wouldn't do it. So I spent days, two days of my time helping three or four of men so that they could continue this college program. If that hadn't have come to me, um, these men would have had to quit the college program. Um, I, so I, I, there's a lot of misconceptions about the prisons um, and the opportunities that these people are supposedly given um, how hard or how easy it is to repair things in their lives. I think it's important that people see that and learn, learn more about that stuff. So, so do you think, so let's, let's talk about the education coordinator. Do you think that one of the issues, and this is just a, an honest question, I'm not trying to say, I'm not trying to lob one over to score, to, to prove a political point or anything. This is a genuine question. Do you think that person is indifferent or do you think that person has just, you know, they can only do the, they can only do so much because there's only one of them and are they dealing with more than one facility like talk about the challenges of that role versus the reality of how it's being executed I do think there are so the facilities are severely understaffed um, they are um, and that's another thing the Department of Corrections is not being honest about we've recently received more um, confirmation that the facilities are still understaffed despite what the Department of Corrections is saying they're running at around 50% capacity, 50% of what they should be running out to, to be safe. And so I'm, I do think a lot of staff are overwhelmed. Um, they're pulling caseworkers to work as corrections officers. They're pulling teachers to work as corrections officers, um, all kinds of things. Um, in this case, I, I think this person is indifferent. I think a lot of times these people are burnout. They've worked there too long. <laughs> They need to move on, find something different. Not all the time, obviously. Um, and I do think there are some, some good officers who care. Um, we, we hear from them. One of the first people that contacted me when I started this work was a corrections officer. Um, and that's kind of how I started hearing from them. And I, I, I let them come to me uh, anonymously. I, I put their communication out there anonymously because I want them to have a voice 
if they speak out about this kind of stuff, they will face retaliation. Absolutely. So, you know, it, there's a lot of different aspects to the staffing issues and what goes on in the prisons. And I'll say, too, that that really does reiterate uh, what Tim Cutt said when I spoke to him uh, sometime in 2021 about, uh, you know, again, he's the head of the Correction Officers Union, or at least he was the last time we spoke. I'm not sure if he's still in that role. I haven't talked to him for a while. He is. Yes. Okay. Um, and I, like when I we were cutting, <clears throat> excuse me, when we were cutting the piece together, um, Adam Summer, who's our producer and my friend and, uh, and, and often um, podcast co-host, he said that when he heard him sigh, when Tim would sigh, he was like the sigh of a thousand men. Because I would say, well, what about, what about this? And he'd go, okay. <laughs> like there, there's everything he said was prefaced by this kind of weariness. And he talked about how people who were trained to say do janitorial or work in the cafeteria um, or the kitchens were suddenly being asked to do double shifts as corrections officers, despite the lack of training. This really is, uh, I think, you know, and, and we, he and I talked about this realistically too. And one of the things that he said, I just want to refresh everybody's memory. If you, if you did or didn't listen to it is that there's always going to be a reality that it's going to be very, very, very hard to staff corrections officers. It is a very difficult job. It is a difficult job, no matter where you do it. Right there's probably very few prison systems in the United States, private or public that always have an adequate supply of corrections officers because the work is so difficult. There's a high turnover. Um, but in Missouri, one of the challenges is that the pay is really low and they do not uh, keep up with um, the cost of inflation and, and, and so forth. I just wanted to make sure that I said that because even coming from the inside, the person who told me about the conditions who, who advocates for the working conditions of uh, corrections officers meets with similar resistance that you're talking about. I believe they were in court. Um, I think the state was suing them for some stupid ass reason for a while. Uh, again, the state was suing the corrections officers union in a state that has some of the highest uh, rates of recidivism. And like we could all go on because I think a lot of the folks who listen to this podcast are probably aware of those things. So one of the things that Tim told me when we spoke was just about the unbelievably adverse conditions that plague the facilities. Um, so he told me, for example, that some of the training facilities where corrections officers are trained, they either didn't have HVAC or it was only recently installed. So some of the corrections officers, when they were sent off, to, and I could be wrong about this and feel free to correct me, um, speaking of corrections, uh, that they were sent off to facilities to be trained where there wasn't heat and they were being trained during the winter. It was something insane like that. Like it was something like, what pre-war hell are you even talking about? And it's 2020, whatever it was. Um, so, and the other issue is, is the, is the food that they're given is now also being supplied by a third party contractor. And Tim described it as completely inedible and the corrections officers have to eat that too. So can you talk about some of those issues from the perspective of like, just trying to find out more about the actual facilities, the conditions, the food and so forth. Sure. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure on the staff on the training facilities for staff. I just don't hear a lot about that information, but I believe it's about half of the prisons in Missouri don't have air conditioning um, or- Let's just, let's just, or heat. I I believe the heat. I'm not for certain, I'm not okay. certain on the heat situation, but, but they don't have air conditioning. Air con so let's just talk I about that. that. Just, let's just stop for a second. Let's just put a, let's just put a, let's just put a period on that. Over half of the prisons in Missouri 
do not have air conditioning. I grew up in a household. I grew up in an old house in Webster, uh, and it was built, you know, just around the end of the 20, 20th century, uh, right before the 20th century started. So, uh, and I slept upstairs in an unair conditioned room without a window unit. And um, that was not pleasant for a child. Uh, and I got to go up and have fun every day, right? I got to get up and like live my best life every morning, pretty much. So is that because these facilities are so old? Is it because they're not being maintained? Is it a combination of both? Um, it's basically because they're old and they didn't install it when they built them. Um, you know, and, and going back to what I said, as if, if we're expecting them to better themselves or go to classes and things like that, are, are they wanting to do that when, you know, it's over a hundred in these, in these facilities, inside the facilities, they were getting temperature readings of 112. Are you going to want to go learn something, you know, in a setting where you're sweating? <laughs> Basically, you have to wear like scrubs. I mean, you know, the, the clothes that they wear are, and they're not allowed to not wear their shirts. They get in trouble for that. They, you know, they can't, the men can't take off their shirts and things like that. So are you going to want to learn in that environment? I, I can't, I can't focus. I get grumpy, <laughs> you know? I Well, I just wouldn't. I would just, I wouldn't leave the fan. I would be like, I'm just going to stand in front of this fan. I'm not going anywhere because I'm wearing a polyester suit with long sleeves or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to stand here with the fan going under my shirt Yes. until I can, until I can't stand anymore. And then I'm going to lay down with my head next to the fan um, and, and I know that like from reading about the so-called workhouse, which has been closed down in St. Louis, you know, reading about what, what, uh, incarcerated people there would do just to keep, stay comfortable during the, during the summer. And again, I was like, is this Victorian England? Like what the hell's going on? So does the prison system in Missouri have the, have the financial resources to improve these facilities? Or is there just, do they have to just punt and, and accept the fact that these have to be rebuilt? I mean, what, like, how much money are we talking about to make these places inhabitable? I believe they do have the funding. I I would love to see an audit done on the Department of Corrections. Um, for instance, I can't remember if it was last year or the year before, you know, there are buildings such as Farmington Correctional Center that has flooding when it rains. The cells that, that these men are in flood. They have to scoop water up with dustpans or cardboard. There are rodents, um, mold in multiple facilities. And yet staff got new uh, John Deere gators to ride around on. Moberly Correctional Center is the same. It's got mold, it's got bugs, the building is falling apart. And staff, they either just recently ordered or are getting ready to order massage chairs for staff members. Now, I, I want staff to feel appreciated. I want everyone to be safe, but l- let's talk about priorities here, you know? If you want people to be safe, then let's get rid of the mold. Let's, let's fix the buildings. And so I just don't know that the, the spending is being done correctly. So let's also assume that um, when we talk about safety, if, if we talk about it through the lens of uh, correctional office, corrections officers, their safety is important. We presumably like, I'm, I'm just, I'm just like thinking through the Republican lens as much as I can, because I don't think that the GOP in Missouri 
does want to rehabilitate anyone. I think they want to punish people. And I think that's their priority is to be able to look at their tough on crime. And typically tough on crime means that we have high stats of uh, incarceration because incarceration, high rates of incarceration means that we're being tough on criminals. It has nothing to do with justice. It has nothing to do with rehabilitation. It has to do with getting people off of our streets. Um, and they are indifferent to those people, whether it's the, the base itself or the, um, the, the actual politicians themselves. And look, I'm going to take a lot of shit for that maybe from people who are Republicans. And I, I've been alive for 52 years. I lived through um, the Just Say No era. Uh, I lived through the crack epidemic. I lived through the HIV epidemic. And now I'm living through the COVID pandemic. And I don't think that much has really changed. So if we talk about it through the lens of the corrections officers, I think sometimes it does tend, and I'm, I'm speaking of this so that we can give people language to talk about this with their friends, family, their lawmakers, whatever, that if prisoners don't feel, if incarcerated people, excuse me, don't feel safe, if they feel like their safety is in danger, they are that much more likely to be violent, to be, you know, think about like if you're, if it's 105 degrees in your, in your cell at night and, or, and, or it's just, it's just flooded and you've spent a frustrating ass 12 hours or whatever bailing water into a toilet or a shitty sink, chances are you're probably not sleeping very well. If on top of that, you're hot, you're uncomfortable, there isn't anything, uh, there isn't mental health access in the facility that where you can just go sit down and talk to somebody about like how angry you are, you've been traumatized already, you've already have a, a history of trauma in your life, that is probably not going to make you a very happy uh, quote-unquote inmate, right? Um, so... The, I would assume that there's probably pretty good statistics that say if you treat people who are incarcerated well, I mean, if they have clean, dry facilities, if they have enough food, if they have access to their medication, if they get to see their loved ones regularly, if they have access to mental health and so forth, they're less likely to be violent, which then means that the officers themselves are less likely to get hurt. What do you see? And you're just, by the way, just for people who are listening, which is everyone, Lori's just been nodding the whole time that I've been saying this because it just kind of makes sense. It's just sort of like, duh, right? Like hugely yeah. logical things I just said. So can you talk a little bit about what the statistics from other states that, you know, like nobody wants to go to jail anywhere. Let's be real. Like jail is jail. Prison is prison. Like there are people who deserve to do the time. I've, I've talked to um, other people who work in this and in, in kind, of do, do kind of advocacy that you do. And we are not saying on this show that there aren't people who deserve to be removed from society. There are violent predators, sexual predators, uh, murderers, and so forth who deserve to be in prison to, to protect society, right? But while they're there, I just want to make sure that they are also not victimizing other people. And the people that stand in between them and harming other people are usually the officers. So if the officers are already overwhelmed, are already dealing with, um, you know, violence, whatever, which I, you know, I talked to Tim Cut about this. He's like, oh, it happens all the time. It happens all the time. It's really, it's, 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 it's not, you know, it's not, it's not every day. It's not an episode of Oz, that old HBO show, <laughs> but it is like violence is common in prison. So can you talk about the different, if you've seen them, what the statistics look like from states where there are better conditions for, for incarcerated people as it relates to the safety of everyone who is a part of the system itself? I, I can't speak a whole lot on other states. I can tell you that um, one of our board members, Dr. Sammy, he's pretty wonderful. Um, he has extensively studied prisons in Norway um, and how they differ from ours. 
And if you look at their statistics, they have less incarceration, they have a lower recidivism rate. And so first of all, they train their corrections officers so much longer than we train ours. In Missouri, I think it's maybe three weeks. It's been a while since I've talked to Tim about that. Um, in Norway, I want to say it's a couple of years um, that, they, that they they go through training. Um, so it's more like a it's more like a vocational nurse or something like that. Like it's a really highly skilled profession. Correct. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And incarcerated people are treated differently. They're it's not looked upon as punishment. It's looked upon as as rehabilitation. And so it is less of let's punish them for what they've done, make this hard on them. Um, and I, I I agree. There are some people that need to be. Um, removed from society for safety purposes. But I look at our statistics of incarceration in the United States and I I can't help but point out it's not working. Um, the system isn't isn't currently working. And there's also just to be just to clarify what I said, there are so many people who are caught in the system that were not originally arrested for a crime like that, right? Most of the I'm not saying like most of the people who are in prison are not guilty of sexual assault. They're guilty of, you know, drug-related offenses, not paying for something. I mean, things that, and they started out relatively young. Can you can you talk a little bit, like, what is the average age of uh, an incarcerated person when they enter the prison system in Missouri? It's been a while since I've looked at those statistics. I do have, I do have that information somewhere. I can tell you that I am aware of people in a level five facility that's the highest level in Missouri maximum level security prison um, for punching someone in the face that was that was the charge not paying child support um, and um, writing a bad check in the maximum level security prison so I think when people think of people in prison they think of murderers and rapists and people with sex charges things like that and there are those, there are people in our prisons with those charges. We also have innocent people in our prisons. Um, and we have people for people, you know, who punched someone in the face or wrote a bad check, you know, and then they are spending years in prison. Um, I know people, and, and luckily we just um, got so many of our, of our um, quote, juvenile lifers out, um, thankfully, but there are so many people who went into our prison system at, 18 and have been in there for 30 years and you know i i i'm not the same person i was at 18 i you are the same person you are when you were 18 then there's something wrong with you right yes yeah yeah you should change you should evolve you should grow you should learn you should be a different person and and also i just want to say really quickly um you should be allowed to fuck up and own your mistakes in a way that holds you accountable for what you did that was wrong nobody should be out there punching people in the face right if you get punched in the face by someone who punched you in the face you should be able to call law enforcement and have that situation handled but i think what is the old expression the time the crime should the time should match the crime right and i certainly don't think that someone who got drunk and got into a bar fight say and punched someone in the face um should be in the same facility as someone who beat his wife right like we should be able to distinguish between one and the other those those sentences and those facilities should be reflective of someone who is a serial domestic abuse uh, perpetrator, right? So someone who beats his wife or beats their spouse or beats their partner 
is someone different from someone who gets into an altercation in a bar parking lot. Those are two different people. Now, if the person keeps getting into fights, right, and keeps proving that they're a violent person, then there should be some way for them to address those issues. And if they keep doing it and they prove that they're not safe, then, you know, maybe there's an argument to say, well, maybe you should be in like a level two or a level three facility. But I think a maximum security facility should be reserved for people who are dangerous, period. And someone who has shown to have had a bad day, right? Everybody has a bad day. I know people who were college educated who stole shit from people because they were strung in on drugs at the time, um, because they were just, you know, going through a bad lot in life. And I can tell you that it is a great thing to be middle class because you get to hire those lawyers that, that get to argue that in front of a judge, right? Um, so, so we criminalize poverty in this country to a level that I think is um, abhorrent, um, which is one of the reasons that I think it's just so important that we're talking to you. So I would like to close out with just you talking about, I'm going to shut up for, first of all, I'm going to stop talking, <laughs> give this back to Lori. Um, too bad I'm not passionate about this issue or anything, right? Like if only I had something to say about it, or if I'd ever thought about it before, maybe, or made observations about American society. And now we criminalize poverty if there's a theme. Talk a little bit more about your organization and um, how folks can find you and how they can get involved if they want to. Sure, yeah. We are on Twitter. <laughs> I run my mouth a lot on Twitter, um, at Missouri Prison. Um, we're on Instagram. I do some TikToking, but it's not very exciting. And we have a website. It is moprisonreform.org. We are a 501c3. That just happened this summer. Um, I'm super excited about that so we can help more people. We have some programs that we're working on, kind of a, I hate to say pen pal program because the Department of Corrections hates that and will tell us we can't do it. But we plan on connecting some incarcerated folks with the incarcerated folks who are approaching release um, with some individuals in the community, you know, just to form relationships, um, friendships, that kind of thing. We are also going to have a financial assistance program to help family members be able to get to visit. Um, that is a, a burden. Um, the Department of Corrections does not try to keep families close together at all, no matter what they say. It's not true. Um, to see my loved one, I travel three and a half hours one way. And so gas money to get to visit, you know, is a burden. You know, if someone needs a small car repair, we want to be able to help that. Things like that um, are just a couple of the programs that we have going on. They can find us on our website, contact us there. We need volunteers. Um, we need donations, all kinds of stuff. Well, we will make sure that all that information is in the show notes for this episode so folks can find you. Um, and I do want to say from my own personal experience that uh, it's a great Twitter follow. There's always really good information. And I think, would you say that the amplification that you get on Twitter is helpful? Does that, does that lead to response from the Corrections Department in Missouri? Yes, definitely. Yeah. Okay. So that's good to know. Cause sometimes I, I say that Twitter isn't real, uh, cause it isn't, <laughs> but if, uh, if someone assures me that the, the actions that we take on Twitter, uh, especially when you say, can you please retweet this and stuff? Um, that's, that's helpful to know. So, um, thank you so much for coming on and, um, for the work that you're doing. And we can't wait to have you back on again to just talk a little bit more about the work you're doing and the other frustrating and, and, and enraging things that the state of Missouri is doing to incarcerate. Like, right. Like it's not going to get better in the short term, but we just have to keep talking about it and make sure that people are aware. Right. Yeah. I tell people all the time, incarcerated folks and their families, like we have such an uphill battle, but I'm not going anywhere. 
So thanks for having me on, Rachel. Neither are we. Thank you so much.